And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Our podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade, Canada's fastest-growing and award-winning online broker. Tired of getting dinged with fees every time you buy or sell U.S. stocks? Well, good news. With Quest Trade, you don't have to. You can hold U.S. dollars in your trading account and avoid expensive, forced conversion fees every time you trade U.S. stocks. Switch today and get up to $50 worth of free trades. Visit questrade.com to open an account and use promo code QUEST. Conditions apply. That's right. It's an SMT day. That means Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm in Toronto today. Back from Scotland. Back from three weeks in Scotland. No more talk about Scotland. Well, tomorrow is a show I did in Scotland. It's a special show for tomorrow, but I'll tell you about that later. Um, hey, how are you, buddy? Man, I am so good. Uh, it's crispy fall weather here, but it's sunny. And my dog is happy, and the coffee's good. Uh, it's going pretty good. It's off to a good start. Uh, I have been reading some stories, though, Peter, about COVID misinformation. That's yeah. one of the things we're going to talk about, right? We, we are. I mentioned this yesterday, as I'm sure you know as a daily listener to The Bridge. Uh, I mentioned this new study by the Kaiser Foundation. Now, I've never heard of them before. Have you, have you heard of them before? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and they, I mean, what I read about them before we get into the data is that they're pretty reputable. They've got a very, 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 very serious, uh, yeah, serious foundation. Yeah. A good, uh, a good reputation. Okay. So their study, um, I, I'm surprised it took this long for somebody to throw this kind of stuff out there. Um, it's all American. So it's all, you know, the, uh, the, those who they surveyed were all in the States. But the basic thrust of the uh, of the study, uh, they put forward eight basic misinformation facts that are kind of out there to try to see how many people believe this stuff. And you know, I, we've always known there is a, a market for misinformation, disinformation, call it whatever you want. Um, but I don't think we realized that it was reaching the kind of market that the Kaiser Foundation suggests it is. These numbers are pretty startling uh, on uh, at least half of the eight basic facts. And it really uh, gets you concerned on two fronts of what's happening in the States and two, whether it's drifting over into Canada as well. So let's leave the Canadian in for a minute and just deal with what you saw on the States. What stuck out to you? I read some of the basic stuff yesterday out of the report. But what sticks out to you as a guy who deals with research and data and numbers and people's opinions on stuff all the time? What stuck out for you in this? Well, probably two things, Peter. One is that you're right. Because of the work that I do, I find myself doing more and more questions for clients on our surveys where we ask Canadians some basic knowledge questions, some true or false questions in order to ascertain the level of kind of illiteracy about a certain subject and, you know, just how much 
kind of misbelief there could be out there. Mostly it's just a question of people not knowing things that maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, most people would have known. That has to do a little bit with the way that we consume information. We've talked about this before. So I measure a lot of it. And um, most of that process has been disheartening for me because the collective fact base isn't what it used to be. And the collective guess base is a much bigger phenomenon, guessing or guessing wrong. Um, but in the case of COVID, it, these kind of misunderstandings or misbeliefs are, they carry a bigger consequence. And so I was struck by how big the numbers are in the context of this has been a phenomena, a news story that has gripped the world for a year and a half. And even after a year and a half, we don't share a kind of like people don't share a common understanding of some pretty basic facts. And it's easy to see somebody injecting something that's wrong into society and having people kind of go, oh, you know, maybe I should believe that because uh, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers said it was true. Or Matthew McConaughey, who's generally pro-vax and pro-mask, said you know, maybe we shouldn't get our kids vaccinated. So that's one thing for sure. But the other thing, and this is, this kind of goes to the business that you have been in all your life. Um, and which I watch with a little bit of concern right now, not to say all media, because it really did show that depending on the media that you are consuming, you could be much more likely to believe things that aren't true about a fatal illness. And so it was the, it was kind of the size of it, uh, of the, of the number of people who don't know or disbelieve or believe things that clearly aren't true, even after a year and a half of it being the most important story everywhere. And second, that there are media organizations, the consumers of the products of which are far more likely to believe these things that aren't true. OAN, Newsmax, Fox News in particular. Those two things really stood out for me. What about you? Um, well, all of that, um, it, it worried, you know, I mean, basically when you do the trusted news source, who, who you know, who do you trust in terms of your information? You're right. Um, the, the largest numbers were clearly in those who were, who watched or listened or read the um you know, the more conservative right-wing media. But it, but still in the progressive media, the numbers weren't insignificant of those who just don't believe this stuff. The accepted scientific facts yeah. about COVID, about the treatment of COVID, about the uh, what you shouldn't be using for the treatment of COVID. Um, you know, the, the, the numbers were scary, you know, sort of... Uh, really leaving you wondering, I agree with you, about the state of the media, not to overgeneralize, but nevertheless, um, I mean, that's where most people get their information is one way or another from different, uh, you know, news sources that they tend to trust. And how certain news sources can be putting out that information 
it leaves you kind of dumbfounded, you know, as to why, what the political agenda is, what the fact agenda is. And it's backed up by, you know, some of the people they cover, some of the leading political figures or celebrities. I mean, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers and Matthew McConaughey. I, I mean, it, it was only a month or two months ago that we were saying they needed more celebrities to come out to talk about vaccines and the need for vaccines. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so here you have a week where you have one guy, albeit a, you know, a well-known quarterback in the NFL, and it's all over the news all weekend. And I don't know whether you read the comment section, but while the, uh, you know, while the glitterati were, you know, dumping all over him, the people, the, the, the comments in the comment section, boy, Aaron, telling it like it is, you're my guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember years ago, I did a piece of kind of desk research, and I actually talked to some people who worked on referendum and petition campaigns in different parts of the world, and and one of the things I was trying to do is figure out, well, how do they work? Because we didn't rehab those in Canada very often. I think we finally had a couple. And this was in the run-up to the Charlottetown referendum. And one of the most stunning things that I learned, and I had no idea about it before, was that if you start a referendum campaign asking people to support something that is already popular, you need to have at least 65% popularity starting a campaign in order to finish with more than 50% at the end of the campaign. And the reason is that in the natural course of the way that these things get covered, you hear equal amounts about the no side as the yes side. So in effect, what the research shows is that the no side wins referendums more often than the yes side does, which doesn't really make sense because most of the propositions start with more people wanting something than not wanting something. But in the end, people hear a kind of an equal weight of the one argument against or the misinformation that, that kind of undermines confidence in the idea of a change. And so the balance kind of tilts that way naturally. So that's the thing that I'm thinking about in the context of this, because there have probably been thousands of celebrities, influencers, whatever we want to call them, musicians, artists, actors, writers, uh, who've come out and said, do this, please. You'll save your life, maybe. It'll certainly save other people's lives. Do it. But we get one Aaron Rodgers, and all of a sudden, we're all consumed with it, right? And so those people who are inclined to want to go, you see, I knew there was something like that we were being told that we needed to do that we didn't need to do. And Aaron Rodgers, he's a smart guy. He almost uh, was going to host Jeopardy. And uh, and so we should just listen to him because also he throws a, a nice pass. Like The amount of attention that's drawn to the very small number, relatively speaking, of people who say something that's kind of off the mark. In Canada, we had this uh, example of Marilyn Gladue, the MP for Sarnia Lambton, I think, who on the weekend in an interview with Evan Solomon was talking about the Civil Liberties Caucus and how they were looking forward to talking with people who had different perspectives uh, on. And of course, 
to Aaron O'Toole's chagrin, I think, that the whole world kind of blew up around him. The Canadian political commentariat and people who follow politics, like people who are listening to our podcast, and they were like, what the hell, right? And so the amount of publicity for the rogue, nonsensical, wackadoodle idea is uh, a phenomenon. And uh, I don't know how that changes. But the last thing I'll say, and maybe you read this piece too, Peter, I'd love to know what you thought about it. The New York Times ran a piece. In fact, you may have sent me the link to it, which said before vaccines arrived, COVID killed red and blue voters in the United States equally. It did not discriminate. And then the vaccines arrived. And now what we're seeing is that of the unvaccinated people who die, and most of the people who die from COVID are unvaccinated people, of every five of those, four are Republican. So there's a real link between this, the, the kind of the, the market for disinformation, the OAN, the Newsmax, the Fox News, and deaths. And knowing what a litigious society America is, I'd be surprised if somewhere down the road, uh, there aren't class action suits about this uh, because the numbers are really, they seem to me to be pretty, pretty clearly pointing in a direction that there's something about it. Now, it may not be that those news organizations are causing people to believe these things, although, you know, people can come to their own conclusions about that. It's plausible that the people who believe these mistruths gravitate towards these new sources. But the correlation is seems pretty clear from the Kaiser work, and the risk seems pretty clear from the piece of, of uh, reporting that we saw in the New York Times. Now, you know, they, the Kaiser Foundation, uh, you know, as we just mentioned a moment ago, uh, did uh, go after trusted news sources and to, to determine who's, who's believing what from where, and you get the left-right split there. But the thing is, it's more than just journalists, as you witness in your, your Canadian example. And I want to talk about Canada a little more in a moment, but I want to just finish off on the States because, you know, there's elected officials. You know, you say what you want about that conservative MP, but she was elected by the people of her riding to take a certain opinion forward out of the House of Commons. Now, whether it was that opinion or not, I don't know, but that's where she, you know, that's who she is. That's what she does. And, and and so she was doing her thing. Now, in the States, it's even more bizarre, more wackadoodly. I mean, you've got that, uh, the QAnon woman, Green, um, you know, uh, publishing the names and the home phone numbers of the Republicans who voted with Biden this week with one one reason only to have supporters harass them for for making that decision you have another republican um member of congress who's put out memes of of him you know in a character memes uh caricature memes of him killing Biden, of him yeah. killing yeah. Um, AOC. And, uh, I, you know, like uh, nobody says anything other than they're doing it. Now, 
goes back to your point. Is it better not to say anything about them, just to totally ignore them? Or are they representative of something that's out there? The quality of elected officials today in the ability to put that kind of stuff out there and and it's kind of passes muster people kind of accept it i think we have to talk about it i i think there's no i agree with you that it's um it's a choice that gives these views and individuals more oxygen and i admire a lot of what I consider to be more of the mainstream news organizations in the United States, where the problem is extremely serious relative to here. Like I complain here from time to time, as you know, and as uh, Chantal and you have kind of occasionally said, be a little bit more surgical in your criticism. And that's fair. Uh, But part of the, the context for me is I don't want our society to end up being a version of what you see south of the border. Um, and I do admire how CNN, for example, has journalists who go right after um, the lies and call them lies and have been doing it, you know, pretty consistently for a number of years since Trump first got elected. And led, and, led by the Canadian Daniel Dale from the, used to be with the Toronto Star. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The categorization, the quantification of the lying and the mistruths and everything else. And I'd like to say that I think that the the side of right, not Democrats versus Republicans, because that's not really it. Although that, you know, the the data do show that the people who traffic in the mistruths are much more likely to be on the right than the left when it comes to COVID in particular. But it's a it's hard to say that the battle is being won in the United States. Uh, you know, if COVID can be so obviously such a devastating thing, I think it's still a thousand people a day who are dying. Um, and we can have this much misinformation. It's gone beyond uh, people kind of being misinformed and saying, well, I didn't hear that, or I don't know if I can trust that, but uh, I heard this other thing. It's more willful. It's more aggressive. It's more, why are you telling me what to do, right? And why are you telling me that I should take this shot? I feel like I should take this horse dewormer instead because uh, Joe Rogan or the Google or, you know, somebody, you know, in my Facebook friends uh, group told me it's a thing. That is a different thing. I think it's being it's a battle that's being lost right now in America. I don't know if 25 years from now we find that America is sort of auto-corrected uh, to something that's kind of safer and healthier. But I'm worried um, that, you know, so far we're not emulating that, but we have a, a milder version of it. And this fight that's going on in the Conservative Party right now in Ottawa around civil liberties and and vaccination, it's not just a fight about those things. It's a fight for whether or not our Conservative Party becomes politically hostage to people who want to traffic in conspiracy theories. And uh, and I was finally glad to see Aaron O'Toole stand up. I know a lot of people, you know, are criticizing his his overall approach on this and and even a little bit the way that he handled his press conference the other day. But 
at least he stood up and said, this cannot stand. We are not, our MPs are not going to go on TV shows or talk to the media or talk to the public and raise doubts about whether vaccines are a good idea against COVID. And um, I've been hoping that he would do that more consistently and forcefully and earlier, but he's doing it now. And I think it's a good thing. It's a big fight that needs to be resolved and, and needs to be won by the side of facts and science. Okay. I, I, you touched on it here a little bit, but I, I want to just go a little deeper before we move off this topic. And, and that's the question of just like, so how pure are we? Look, I think we can all agree that they're, they're off the rails in many different ways in the States on a number of issues. And when I say they're off the rails, I'm talking, you know, it's, it's you know, the, there's, a, the, there's a certain group who believe certain things. There's the media, there's the politicians, there are the influencers. Some of them are clearly off the rails. But how pure are we really? Okay, so the conservatives have had their back and forth uh, on this issue. And O'Toole looks like he's finally drawn a red line in the sand. And as you say, he's drawn a red line in the sand. We'll see whether... It's a, a an Obama-like red line in the sand, or if it's a real red line in the sand, we're we're going to find that out in the next days and weeks. Um, but do you do we have any data? And if we don't, you know, maybe we should be trying something along the lines of the Kaiser Foundation to try and get a, a handle on this, because you know we just went through an election campaign where they didn't win a seat. But they had 5% of the vote, and in some areas that 5% was, you know, like 10%, riding I live in. In southwestern Ontario, 10% voted for the People's Party. And, they, you know, there's a significant number of those who, who believe on a lot of this stuff that uh, can be ascribed to misinformation. Um, anyway, do we have any hard data? And if we don't, is it worth trying to do some? Um, we gathered data on um, misinformation about COVID probably, I'm going to say it feels like nine months ago, and maybe I'll dig it out and send it to you. And if we want to tweet it out so people who are kind of following our discussion can see it, I'll be happy to get it. Um, we also, once vaccines came into focus, started asking questions about vaccines and confidence in vaccines and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, so that takes us back no, nine months, maybe almost a year, right? Because mm -hmm. it was last November, I guess, when we started to hear that there was going to be a vaccine that might be available. It's almost exactly and, a year now. And then at that time, what we were seeing was something like 50, 55% saying, I'm anxious about this vaccine because it's being developed so quickly and will it have been tested enough and that sort of thing. So the hesitancy size was fairly significant, but of course we know now that of the adult population, which is typically what we measure in our surveys, we don't, you know, we don't go down below 18. Almost everybody's vaccinated or about to get vaccinated. And I think that the, the mandates that kick in at the end of this month are going to solve for half of what's left to be vaccinated, probably just because I'm looking at what happened in the New York um, state or New York city data. And it really showed that once you're kind of right up against it, you can't get on a plane, you can't get on a train, you can't probably go to your job. Uh, those are, those are pretty 
important signals in getting a lot of people vaccinated. So we had doubts, a little bit of skepticism. We didn't have it endure the way that it has in the United States, and maybe it's been cultivated in the United States through these channels of communication that that people consume. And there, I don't think there are none of them here, but there aren't the there aren't the scale uh, platforms that you see in the United States, and there isn't this kind of active. I mean, as much as I've been critical from time to time of Aaron O'Toole and, and, and some other leading conservatives on this, I've been a little bit more critical of them from the standpoint of they should do more to stamp this out. Um, you know, I think that Aaron O'Toole should do more to call out Max Bernier, who, let's face it, Max Bernier won 12 of 13 ballots when he ran for the conservative leadership. He only lost to Andrew Scheer on the very last ballot by one percentage point. So this is a fellow who has a voice with conservatives and says he's not going to get vaccinated because he jogs and that's good enough for him. Well, you know, we have people like that who are saying things like that, but it doesn't seem to be creating a, a groundswell. And so far, our conservative party, unlike the Republican Party in the United States, is saying we're kind of tempted not to alienate these voters, but we really feel that mainstream Canadian voters don't want us to play that game. And so we're going to try to resist that temptation. Now, I think that chapter is not completely written. I think it's going to be an interesting month in it, but so far our system is kind of held up. Okay. Um, and I, you know, you can see me on the screen. I got my fingers crossed. I got my toes crossed. I really don't want us to fall uh, into that uh, into that abyss. Uh, you talk about the next month going to be an interesting month, and it is on that front. And it also may well be on the front of how this new government, or new in the sense that uh, just reelected in a minority position, survives, and whether or not it's going to have a deal of some kind. Um, between the Liberals and the NDP. We'll, um, we'll update that when we come back. Our Black Friday sponsor is The Economist. If you don't already know, its expertise lies in making sense of the world's most important developments. It offers completely independent opinion and analysis, giving you a balanced global view of an issue instead of a biased or politically motivated opinion. And don't be fooled by the name. It covers pretty much everything from culture to science and technology, from politics to finance and business. It's Black Friday. Get 50% off the annual digital subscription to The Economist. This gives you access to the website, their app, podcasts, newsletters, webinars, and more. It's a great offer, and we think it'll make a difference the way you see the world. There's a reason world leaders read it. We hope you will give it a try. Just visit economist.com slash bridge50 to get 50% off your first year, including full access to the app and economist.com. That's economist.com slash bridge50, where 50 is a number for 50% off your first year to enjoy The Economist whenever and wherever you want. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson in Ottawa, Peter Mansbridge in Toronto on this day. 
you're listening either on Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or wherever uh, you get your podcasts. We welcome you no matter where you're listening from. Um, all right, Bruce, so there's, you know, we talked about this on Good Talk with Chantel last Friday. Uh, is there... You know, is there any, uh, they, people are being very careful about this. They're not denying these talks. In fact, they've basically confirmed that there have been talks, uh, but they're not going so far as to say, you know, there's going to be some kind of agreement or written agreement uh, on on cooperation for a number of years um, between the two parties to keep basically the Liberals uh, in power for a couple of years. Now, you warned us last week, that you didn't think there'd ever be a formal agreement. Um, but should we assume that at some point there's going to be a nod saying, you know, yes, we have an understanding? Well, I don't know. I, I'm still in the same place, which is that it it makes more sense for there to be an understanding, and it also makes more sense for there not to be a declared understanding. Um, and the reasons for that aren't that people want to kind of obscure the truth it's more, um, Chantal raised the point in our conversation last Friday that, you know, if the NDP is going to enter into a deal, they're going to want to announce it because they're going to need that sense of transparency with their members and their voters, that they're going to want to know what did we agree to uh, in exchange for what. And it's probably, if I had to guess, it's a little bit that that made uh, the leadership of the NDP sort of think hard about whether or not they wanted to say there was any sort of a formal deal at any point in time, because if you say there's a formal deal, then people say, show it to us. And if you don't say there's a formal deal, but you just have an understanding that you're going to uh, not cause an election to happen, um, except under very extraordinary circumstances, which I'll come to in a moment, then maybe that's the best way forward. Um, Second thing I would say is that the very extraordinary circumstances, you started to see NDP spokespeople raise these situations earlier in the week by way of saying, well, you know, it, we would maybe have an understanding on major policy agenda items and uh, most uh, confidence votes or all confidence votes, but in the event that something came up that we felt was egregious, like I think the example was used was the SNC-Lavalin thing, but really they were talking about corruption and, and that kind of thing, something that, that fell outside of the policy agenda as outlined by the government and as generally agreed to by the NDP, then the NDP would say, well, we didn't agree to support the government no matter what, we agreed to support or we have been in talks to support. So that is always, in my mind, the nature of any agreement that might occur, is that it is conditional in the sense that it would be about the policy agenda uh, and not everything that could happen in politics. And, uh, and that it would still be better in that case for uh, Jagmeet Singh to say there's no formal deal, especially, and this kind of goes to, well, what about on the government side of this? Does the government really want to say on day one, here are the 10 things that we're going to do over the next two and a half or three years, and we're telling you them to you now so that everybody can understand that the NDP has said that they're going to support us on those things. You know, governments don't like to, I mean, they, they will in the throne speech talk about the direction, but they don't like to make 
some announcements until they're ready. And some of them take time to develop and that sort of thing. So I think there are reasons on the government side not to want to categorize what might be agreed to. And the reasons on the NDP side not to talk about there being any kind of a formal understanding as well. You know, when I look at it, I can I can certainly see the argument that both those parties uh, would be using in any kinds of discussions or negotiations that are going on. Uh, and I can see the value for them on a lot of fronts in terms of, you know, trying to have a certain continuity to uh, to put in place an agenda that they both have uh, some agreement on. It also affords them opportunities to, you know, raise money for the next election campaign whenever that comes. But I also think it's a big potential plus for the Conservatives. Um, it gives them, they're kind of alone on the field of, being against the government. And they'll always be able to campaign that way whenever the election is two, three years down the road, uh, that we didn't go to bed with these guys. We didn't prop them up. You want them out. There's only one choice now. It's clear. It's never been more clear. So I, you know, I can see that, you know, at a time when they need some, (laughs) some good news because they've had problems as we all know. Um, but this is potentially good for the Conservatives. You know, I read a column about it, um, you know, making that case yesterday. And I don't know that I agreed with it. I understood the logic that Aaron O'Toole needs something to talk about that isn't, you know, the caucus tension that he feels and the the sword hanging over his leadership and vaccines. Why are we still talking about them? All of that. Um, But the challenge that is raised by this is not really just a near-term political math. It's a longer-term political math. And by that, I mean, in our latest surveys, the number of people who identify as progressives is up to 70%. For a long time, it was around 60, and then it was up around 65, and it's at 70 now. So it's 70 who identify as progressives, 30 who identify as conservatives. So yes, those 30% can get more excited about voting conservative if you say all of the progressives are ganging up and they're controlling the agenda. But it's, you know, the fact that there might be this kind of understanding signals a bigger phenomena of concern or should be of concern to conservatives, which is that as the population changes demographically, there are more progressive voters. It's not just everybody's fighting over the same voter block as existed 25 years ago. There's a lot of young people and there's a lot of young people who say that climate is a disaster that's going to fall on us that income inequality is a disaster that old people don't want to take seriously, but it's our lives, especially when we can't afford homes. And they want action. And uh, also on inclusion and Indigenous relations, there's a reason why those are the kinds of pressure points that the Liberals feel, not the deficit, not how high our taxes It's because there's more voters over there. There's a reason why the conservatives can talk about deficits and taxes and the rise of China. And they're not getting any traction 
it's because there's not a growth in the number of voters on that side of the ledger. So I, if I were a conservative advisor, I would say be careful not to take too much solace in this idea that these progressive forces are coming together because the best scenario for conservatives is probably what's happening in the Democratic Party in the United States, which is the Democratic Party is pulling itself apart. There's the sort of middle of the road progressives, and then there's the get, let's get on with some real progressive action progressives. And, the, and you know, it's, the Democrats are paying a price and the Republicans have an opportunity. So I think it would actually be the, the opposite that would be an opportunity for the conservatives. If it, um, but right now, it kind of looks to me like they, they just need to be careful not to, not to look at that yellow color and, and think it's gold and maybe it'll turn out to be fool's gold. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I, I hear you on that. But I mean, look, their their job is to oppose, right? I mean, the, that is what an opposition party does to oppose constructively and and to, uh, you know, to, to be with government and agree with government when they think that's the responsible thing to do. But basically, they're always looking for the angle that isn't being talked of or that should be talked of uh, as far as they're concerned. Um, and the thing about politics is... It's cyclical. Stuff changes. I mean, you're, you know, just as you said, they've gone from 60 to 70% in, in your data in terms of the number of progressives in Canada. Um, they could go back to 60, right? Right. But it, the, the choice of what to oppose is really important. So the yep. Conservatives sent their environment critic to the COP meetings in Glasgow. Do you recall hearing anything about that? Have they said anything about it? Has Aaron O'Toole said anything about it? Have they said, we want to achieve these emissions reductions, but we want to do it in a different, better way? Then they don't, they don't oppose on that. Instead, Aaron O'Toole is tweeting yesterday that um, because Saskatchewan Premier Mo said, you know, Saskatchewan should be a nation within a nation, that, you know, Aaron O'Toole is now saying, well, there's a national unity crisis involving Saskatchewan again. If you choose those kinds of things to oppose on, all I'm saying is, yeah, you should oppose. But the choices you make in those spaces have, a, have an impact. Yeah, they do. And uh, the, the, those are the big decisions that are going to be made in the next couple of years and how they position themselves. Look, if it all goes to hell in a handbasket for the liberals and the NDP in the next two to three years on a number of fronts that they're hoping are going to show their way out of it right now, um, you know, it's an opportunity. Yeah. But uh, they, they are critical and big decisions that have to be made. Uh, it's, it's tough being in opposition. You've got, you know, you, you've got forces pulling against each other uh, and not with each other at different times. And we've seen that with, with all parties, not just conservatives. Let me ask you a question. You watched Pierre Polyev for a good number of years now. And he was the finance critic, and then he wasn't the finance critic after Erno Tool got elected as leader. And as of yesterday, he is again. What do you make of that? Is that smart because, as Erno Tool said, he makes the liberals quiver, or is that risky because he's the kind of politician who, you know, who can be kind of divisive? 
What what what's your take? You've watched him for a good while. We've talked about him many times. Yeah, sure, no, 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 we have. Um, listen, I think he's a very effective guy in the House of Commons um, uh, when he's when he's on the attack. When he doesn't go too far, when he doesn't kind of lose it a little bit uh, around the edges, and we've seen people like him over time. Um, you know, the Liberals used to have that kind of group with the Rat Pack, whether it was you know Sheila Copps or. Uh, John yeah. Nunziata or Brian Tobin. I mean, they were there. They were. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I do. And yeah. and so I I think it was wise to get him. You know, a, a very wise political observer once said to me, "It's better to have them doing something inside the tent than outside the tent." And is uh, this the only <laughs> podcast in the world where we can't say pissing? <laughs> and also, that was Lyndon Johnson. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um. So I think it was smart to bring him back in, but they're going to have to be careful because he he also has his own ambitions, right? I mean, there's no doubt he wanted to run for leader last time round, yeah. and for yeah. whatever mysterious reason he didn't, doesn't mean he yeah. won't the next time round. So uh, you know he he's um, he's an interesting guy to watch, and he's he can be good. Uh, he could be very good drama inside the House of Commons and outside the House of Commons, um, but he also has to be careful uh, yeah. on how he goes about that. Okay, we're out of time, um, but this has been a good discussion, and we'll have more of it. I'm, and uh, on uh, Polyev, I'm sure, because I bet you Chantel wouldn't mind having a, a run at that discussion as well. Yeah, you know, some of the other appointments I thought were interesting too, so maybe we can touch on them on Friday. I sure. thought... Uh, Michelle Rempel Garner as the resources critic instead of health critic is, uh, is probably a good choice, but uh, we'll yeah. see how that goes. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Good to talk. Thank you. As always. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the tomorrow remembrance day. So, you know, um, acknowledge that moment wherever you are. Uh, in tomorrow afternoon on the bridge of a special that I did in Scotland, uh, not on Remembrance Day. That was on Monday as I kind of set you up for Remembrance Day. If you didn't listen to the podcast, that is one of the ones that I'm most proud of having done uh, of all the two years of podcasts I've been doing now. Um, anyway, tomorrow it's a special on libraries. You might want to, it, it sounds a lot it's much more interesting than you may think it sounds from that plug. It's a really good discussion. Um, so that's uh, tomorrow, Friday. Good Talk is back with Chantel and Bruce. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson in Ottawa. I'm in Toronto. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. <laughs>